Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Susie Ferguson, and I'm here today with Professor Alexis Wick, who is an assistant professor of history at the American University of Beirut, uh, where we are broadcasting today. Um, and the topic of our discussion today is uh, is Ali's new book, um, The Ottoman Red Sea, or sorry, The Red Sea in Search of Lost Space, which is partly about um, the question of the Ottoman Red Sea. And this book, uh, we're very lucky to have Professor Wick here with us today. This book was is hot off the presses um, from the University of California Press. So Ali, congratulations on the book, and uh, thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I'm, uh, uh, as I said to you earlier, I'm really excited to talk about this book um, because it raises really a host of issues, not only about the Red Sea and the Ottoman Empire, but also about the methodologies and presumptions of the field that we know and love as uh, Ottoman history. So I'm hoping that um, we can get to sort of both of those sets of issues in our conversation today. Um, and our listeners can therefore look forward to an episode uh, which will take on theoretical and conceptual issues. Um, about our discipline as well as empirical ones. So I thought um, maybe we could start out by, I just wanted to, you know, I, I've noticed that in the last sort of maybe five to 10 years, there's been kind of a spate of books um, dealing with seas and oceans or bodies of water as sort of their primary frame of analysis or question, you know, thinking about people like um, Nsang Ho and Giancarlo Casale, right? Um, and I think, you know, Nsang Ho is called this, uh, or referred to this as the oceanic turn. So I sensed from the book that you, um, you're both within this field and also a, a critic or perhaps a historian of it. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, if you could just tell us a little bit about, you know, has there been an oceanic turn and does this book fit into that move or is it, um, does it lie a little bit outside of it? Thanks, that's a great question and it really, um ties in with the origin of this book, essentially, which indeed be began as a, an attempt to join the oceanic turn of the historical discipline and write what I thought would be a straightforward uh, history of the Ottoman Red Sea, um, in part because of the mood of the discipline at large and Ottoman history in particular, but also because I found it uh, remarkable that the Red Sea, despite its obvious coherence and geological, geographical, historical, uh, did not have its historian. This was the kind of impetus when I first went out to the uh, Ottoman archives in Istanbul to gather material and data to write a history of the Ottoman Red Sea, or the Red, uh, history of the Red Sea in the Ottoman period uh, in the mold of the post-Bordelian um, oceanic turn. Right, right. But you, of course, note um, in the book that actually, I mean, the, the question of the sea as an object of analysis has a much longer history than, you know, uh, the field of Ottoman history or even the discipline of history over the last, you know, 10 or 15 years. Um, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about, you know, in the course of your exploration, what did you find about, you know, this sort of category of the sea or the sovereign sea as an object of history? And, and what is the history of that concept? Well, so, I mean, perhaps I can go backwards. There's kind of two tracks to this, I think. Uh, the startling realization that, uh, or observation that I had when I got into the Ottoman archives was that the Ottomans 
until the mid-19th century, that is, did not call that place the Red Sea and did not have a conception of it as the Red Sea. And that led me to, uh, to actually reflect on um, the category of the Red Sea in its specificity, but also the larger uh, category of the sea in the abstract. And what I discovered is that uh, the sea, in fact, is a very um, important, indeed central element to the philosophy of history uh, much earlier than we, or than I at least, uh, knew. And indeed, it goes back to the uh, disciplinization of, the, of history and its institutionalization in the early 19th century. Mm. Uh, and in particular, it features prominently, for example, in the work of Hegel and in his lectures on the philosophy of history. Um, there is the sea in general and the uh, Mediterranean, of course, mm -hmm. in particular. Right. So the Mediterranean, I mean, the Mediterranean emerges as this kind of ur-sea or the kind of early um, sort of the, the concept of the sea kind of takes place around this space. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about what, what the relationship is between the concept of the sea and, um, you know, the, the sort of becoming of the, his, the discipline of history. I mean, how do, they, how do they relate? Perhaps using Hegel as an example. I mean, Well, for Hegel, for example, the, uh, and, and, which is an idea I think that he gets from Adam Smith before him uh, and others, no doubt, um, the basic... Uh, principle for Hegel is that counterintuitively the sea is not an obstacle or a border, a natural border as it may appear to be, uh, but on the contrary is a, a connecting link, almost natural um, vector of communication. Mm. Um, and so, so for him the sea should not be conceived of as a, uh, as a space that kind of borders the historical mm but indeed one that uh, stimulates historical becomings. So in a way, we could think of Hegel as perhaps like uh, the, the, the father of the oceanic turn. I mean, that, that the sea itself should be an object of historical analysis, this and is in particular in, the Mediterranean. Yes, this is in a way what I'm, uh, what I'm trying to argue or what I try to demonstrate uh, in one of the chapters of this book. Right. So then I think, I mean, we could turn then to this question of why the Mediterranean in particular um, you know, uh, one of the arguments that you're that you uh, that you I think make in the book is is that there's kind of a relationship also between um, the sort of emergence of Europe as uh, an idea or as a concept and um, the concept of the sea, in particular the Mediterranean. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about um, how that comes about. Well, that's also a, a very good question, and it is indeed at the heart of this book. Um, and I think it can go two ways. I mean, one, there's the notion of the uh, Mediterranean as the uh, fount and the source of European civilization. Right, and this goes um, back to sort of the Greeks and... You the know, Greeks, the Phoenicians even in uh, an awkward way, the... So it becomes um, part of a kind the of Mara European... Nostrum of the Romans, yeah. and it becomes uh, appropriated as the exclusive fount of... Um, European civilization or Western civilization. Um, but also the Mediterranean emerges in the early 19th century as an operative geographical concept. And it is in a, in a geographical sense too appropriated to um, European, to the European space in a way. Right, 
Right, and it strikes me that this is part of also a sort of 19th century um, recapturing of a classical European civilizational heritage, perhaps, you know, this sort of like going back to the Greeks and the Romans and um, naming this space as belonging to Europe. Definitely, but I, but I also, absolutely, but I also want to insist on the geographical dimension of it and the emergence of the Mediterranean as an organic kind of uh, intuitive whole that makes sense to us uh, and which we've inherited. I mean, we talk Absolutely. about the Mediterranean as a distinctive uh, space. Hegel will appropriate that geographically in his famous uh, argument on the geographical basis of history, will uh, detach, for, detach, for example, northern Africa right. in its Mediterranean guise from the rest of Africa proper right. and appropriate it to Europe. Indeed, legitimizing and justifying uh, the French conquest of Algeria as a geographical natural fact, outcome, almost yeah. interesting. And similarly with uh, Western Asia, of course, uh, also uh, on the Mediterranean. So maybe we could contrast, you know, this sort of like um, perhaps the sort of easy affinity between the Mediterranean and. Uh, an emergent concept of Europe and of history with um, the way that European thinkers conceived of um, the Ottoman Empire or the world of Islam or the Arab world uh, in relationship to the sea. Yes, so uh, another element in, the, in, this, uh, in this configuration, if you want, this uh, discursive formation, uh, and we know that uh, very well that um, a concept of self is always produced by uh, the appropriation of certain things, but also the distancing of the other. And one of the uh, very long-standing associations has been between Europe and the sea, the sea in general, maritimity as a concept, right. but also the Mediterranean Sea in particular. And in parallel, the uh, disassociation of non-Europeans from the maritime. And this is very clear in Hegel, for example, uh, where he defines Africa as being distinctly non-maritime or as being distinguished by its lack of access to the sea. Right. And it is uh, later on elaborated um, by others with the um, Islam in general and uh, in the case of a famous a geographer, historical geographer, Xavier de Pragnol, who has a book called Islam and the Sea, mm. where he argues that Islam is distinguished by its lack of maritimity. Right, and its association with the desert and, and its association the lands, the, right? Exactly. And this carried on in the field of Ottoman history, too, in distinctive way, ways, as Palmyra Brummett mm -hmm. uh, showed now some while ago already. Yeah, well, we can direct our listeners to uh, another episode that we have uh, with Paul Meimer-Bummett on this question. So, um, you know, the, these questions, I think, about, um, you know, the sort of spatial assumptions that get carried into the production of categories like Islam or Europe, um, I think is a really fruitful sort of track to go down uh, for the researcher. Um, so I guess then the, the next question is, is sort of the perhaps the corollary, um, which is, you know, did the Ottomans have an idea of the sea uh, in general, or the Red Sea in particular, um, sort of prior to the 19th century? What did, what did that look like? I mean, obviously they were uh, 
you describe the Red Sea as an Ottoman lake for, for about you know, roughly four centuries. So clearly they were, um, they were in the space of the sea. How did they think about it? Well, that's a good and really difficult question. I would be hesitant to, um, to actually conjugate categories such as Ottoman and sea mm -hmm. in the abstract, in fact. Uh, so let me speak more, more to the material that I'm familiar with uh, and comfortable with. Of course, the sea has always featured prominently in Ottoman history. I think all Ottoman historians would uh, agree to that instinctively almost. And in the case of the Red Sea, in particular, what I found uh, startling is that, as I said before, they didn't conceive of it as the Red Sea until the mid-19th century when it becomes, when the use of the category Red Sea becomes ubiquitous in the form most often of Bahri Ahmar. Right. Um, but also Kizil Deniz and others. Before that, the most common appellation was Bahri Suvais. And what I came to the realization of is that Bahri Suvais is not simply another name for the same place, but indeed may convey a different sense of um, spatiality, in fact, more largely. One in which, and I think this is very important, the, the appellation is very important in the sense that it's mediated, it's relational. It, goes through a, an, a city mm, on a the shores, city, yeah. a port city on the shores, uh, that was strategically important to the Ottomans, of course. Um, and equally important is the fact that it wasn't the only name available or mobilized in, uh, in Ottoman or in Arabic of the time. There were others, often associated to different shores and different places mm. around the sea. So it's very interesting because, you know, at the outset of our conversation, you said, well, you know, the, the, uh, the Red Sea is kind of an obvious object for historical analysis or even contemporary conception because, you know, it was an Ottoman lake in that the Ottomans were present on, on all of its shores. Um, it's relatively geographically uh, perhaps uniform compared to larger bodies of water. Um, and it was, you know, tightly connected by these kinds of mobilities, you know, trade and um, travel. Uh, across it. But then at the same time, it seems like for the Ottomans, actually, it looked very different. I mean, in that it was a space of um, sort of overlapping uh, names and also that the names were not about the body of water as a whole. Um, so, you know, you mentioned sort of this concept of an Ottoman spatiality based on this example. You know, wh what could we say about an Ottoman spatiality, at least in, you know, particular to the Red Sea? What, how are they conceiving of the space? Well, again, I would be hesitant to call it an Ottoman spatiality in the abstract or to define particular uh, features associating Ottomanness or Ottomanity with, in the abstract with spatiality in the abstract. But uh, certainly what I found um, revealing was this relational or mediated notion of space uh, whereby um, places are defined by uh, in, in mediated form as opposed to a, the kind of objective space of a two-dimensional map, say. Mm. So what, you, what do you mean by mediated form in that they're defined by um, particular places that have particular Places, importance, people, mm -hmm. texts, discourses, uh, symbols, a variety of, of ways. And this is not unusual, of course. Uh, indeed, even in the 
European tradition that would eventually lead to the institutionalization of geography as a discipline itself before the 19th century was not, not unusual to have a multiplicity of names and a multiplicity of categories to evoke the same in different places. Mm, right. Right. And maybe, I mean, we can get uh, a little bit later to, to sort of how this changes over time. Right. Because, um, you know, in a way, uh, it seems to me like like there's a real shift um, in this with the coming of sort of geographical thinking, shall we say, in the 19th century, or a new kind of um, geographical thinking. But first, I, I want to draw out this question of, you know, what did the Ottoman Red Sea look like by asking you about um, sort of a methodological question, which is that, you know, I can't say uh, that I've ever seen a chapter uh, in a book on Ottoman history, and this may just, you know, reveal my own ignorance, but uh, that really is based around the close reading of a single document. Um, and, and not only that, but a document that you uh, yourself describe as, you know, I can't remember if it's trivial or something, but it's an everyday document. This is not like the smoking gun of like explaining, um, you know, the entire arc of your argument or something. So I, I'm curious how you came to, to sort of turn to this methodological approach to answer the question of sort of how can we think about the Ottoman Red Sea? And maybe this goes back to your, um, your desire not to generalize about it in the abstract? Yes, well, my, the, the challenge that I set for myself was to try to imagine and attempt a writing of history outside of the logic of Eurocentric time and space. Mm. And I found it useful for that, at least, to ground myself and anchor myself in uh, what else but an Ottoman document. Mm. Um, and, of course, building on scholarship that has demonstrated that the basic difference that we uh, assume or in which uh, disciplinary history grounds itself between the primary source and the secondary source right. is more complicated than may appear at first, uh, I sought to uh, explore in a kind of almost trivial document derived from the famous Mohimei Misir uh, series, registers in the Ottoman archive. What a close, deep over-reading of that document would yield uh, in an attempt to anchor a, my writing and my historical imagination in, uh, in the interstices of uh, this Ottoman scribe's uh, product. Right. I mean, can you tell us a little bit more about this uh, this idea of overreading and sort of connect it maybe to um, the desire to not differentiate in your reading or your writing between primary and secondary sources in the way that historians often do? Well, um, I mean, overreading is an, uh, is is a is a term that's been used and with along with a number of other cognates, deep reading and. Um, and what slow reading, whatnot that that derives from a long tradition actually of exegesis that that sees in a text not a, a kind of mine of data, but rather a, a an entire kind of textualized cosmos, mm. um, and that our relationship to reality is mediated through language at its most basic in its most basic form. And uh, so I, I took the kind of methodological position of applying that uh, 
type of overreading, not only to the established uh, canon of uh, high culture, if you want, but also to documents that are usually used uh, to as a as a pool of data mm. and to see what um, what it would yield yeah and I think you know that's something um, I encourage all of our Ottomanist readers and other readers as well to uh, to read the book because I think one thing that really knits it together is that um, you're you bring this sort of uh, the careful slow reading kind of multifaceted reading of, of documents uh, equally to this Ottoman document as to Hegel, as to, you know, the kinds of things that um, are usually taught in a class on theory, right? Uh, and I think that that's actually a really provocative um, and, and, and fruitful way of reading um, and to pay attention to sort of the aesthetics of the text and the, the sort of relationship that the text presumes with the reader um, in a document from the Ottoman archive, uh, which, you know, I think... Um, uh, you see a lot of being sort of added up as data to prove a point. I think that was that's a really powerful um, that's a really powerful way of reading. So, I guess my next question is then: So, can you tell us about the document and what does it what does it reveal and how do you you know what did you gain from this kind of um, overreading of it? Well, I won't spoil the uh, right. Your we want to okay? leave something <laughs> for uh, for people who who read the book. But no, but but your your. Uh, the way you describe it is actually uh, exactly it, actually. The, um, I found that the actual um, mode of writing uh, was important, uh, and the rhetoric of the text, which is a basically a fairly straightforward, when you think about it, command to build, to buy uh, ships to, um, for the provisioning of the uh, Hejaz. Right, from, uh, if I'm not mistaken, 1771, is that right? Something like this? I think so. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Pre-19th um, century. Anyway. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, 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 definitely. 1777. Ah, okay. Um, and the, but what I found is that the, the actual text itself, uh, instead of simply uh, formulating itself as a straightforward command, uh, found it necessary to build a case in very uh, what proved to be quite um, extensive and profound ways. Though it's not a particularly long text, uh, its its rhetoric and its composition uh, added significant uh, layers, if you want, and depth to the uh, matter at hand, revealing, I think, a particular understanding of the Ottoman Red Sea, mm. in a way. Great. Well, I, I'll direct our listeners to, to the chapter uh, to find out more where you can, you can really find a very, um, a very detailed and thoughtful reading of, of this document, which is certainly going to, you know, for me, as someone who's just beginning work in the Ottoman Archive and struggling through documents, you know, it, it's, it really um, it made me much more interested in reading them, actually. So that was, it, it's really a pleasure to read. Um, so then maybe we can, uh, we can turn to I think the you know the the question of what is the Red Sea or what is the sea uh, is one of the central preoccupations of the book, and the other one it seems to me is this question of how history makes its object, um, and you get at this kind of a, and I think this is a really you know provocative way to begin is by asking the question of why hasn't there been a history of the Ottoman Red Sea? I mean, you sort of noted that you came to this project having sort of witnessed or 
thought about the sort of oceanic turn, maybe as we as we're calling it, and then and then noticing that the Red Sea hadn't had its historian. Um, why do you think that is? Well, as you say, that was the very straightforward point of departure for me. Uh, and but instead of simply um, acting out on that uh, initial impulse. I began reflecting on whether this absence of the uh, history of the Red Sea, despite its obvious, um, almost compelling uh, presence, uh, didn't reveal certain uh, features and characteristics of our craft mm. and of our discipline. And uh, that resulted in one of the chapters of the book that explores the um, in six theses, the uh, absence of the Red Sea, um, ranging with material that's historiographical, theoretical, uh, but also ultimately uh, linguistic, even. Yeah. Well, maybe. I mean, maybe we could talk about. Um, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to give away the whole show. Uh, but I, I'm curious about. Maybe we could talk about a few of those theses. Um, we could start with this question of, um, you know, we talked a little bit at the beginning about the way in which Islam and the Arab world are uh, associated with land and the desert and Europe becomes associated with water and maritimity, right? So this is one reason um, why perhaps, you know, the Ottoman Red Sea didn't make it into this sort of, the, the long history of Europeans studying the history of bodies of water. Um, but I'm curious, I mean, you, you, you mentioned at another moment in the book that the Ottoman Empire is in an interesting position vis-a-vis -vis Europe, right? I mean, sometimes it's within the category and sometimes it's the other, um, but it's, it's not always sort of homogeneously located in, you know, uh, the land of Islam and the desert. So I'm curious, you know, I, I was a question I had when I was reading, you know, how do you, what do you make of that? I mean... I think there's more than one question in the... In in what you just said. Uh, but indeed, the Ottomans feature kind of awkwardly in the, uh, in the global hegemonic discourse of, that rises in the 19th century of particular spaces being historical, i.e. Europe, and other spaces being uh, non-historical, um, as exemplified by Hegel. And, um, and the Ottomans, for obvious geographical or spatial and temporal mm -hmm. reasons don't quite fit the the continental boundaries, right. to the put it as simply yeah. as possible, that uh, nurtured these uh, assumptions concerning the historicity of uh, of particular spaces. Uh, but also temporally, it lasts until the 20th century, 1923. You know, which made it more complicated for to fit neatly in, these, in, these, uh, in this packaging. That said, as far as the sea is concerned, there has been a fairly heavy a priori in the field of Ottoman history. Again, I refer the listeners back to Palmyra Brummett's first book, which saw the, which understood the, the, the essence of the Ottoman Empire as being very land-based. And, therefore reticent to uh, engage with the sea. Um, of course, there has been, from the, st the start of, the, of Ottoman history as a, as a field, there's been work done on, on precisely the maritime dimension of Ottoman history. 
but it hasn't kind of shaken sufficiently, at least, I think, this assumption that the Ottoman state was primarily land-based. Uh, land yeah. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, can you say a little bit more about why you think that is? I mean, um, you know, so what are, the, what are the paradigms in Ottoman history or the, um, you know, the sort of predispositions of the archive um, or the sort of historiographical, dominant historiographical theses which uh, mm. lead us to focus on land rather than on water? Well, so in, in that chapter that we referred to uh, before, I make the argument that this has to do with a number of, um, of reasons. In the case of the Red Sea in particular, the, the absence of the, Red sea, of the Ottoman Red Sea as a kind of coherent subject of history has uh, derived from a number of reasons. One is the kind of overarching theoretical uh, association of Europe with the sea right. and of non-Europe being disassociated from the sea. But also there's the uh, dominant model of provisionism, right. which, has, uh, which has played an important role in the uh, direction of Ottoman studies. And you know, many of our listeners will be familiar with the idea of provisionism, but you know, the, the idea that the sort of driving logic, shall we say, first of all, that there was a logic to the Ottoman Empire, um, or even an economic logic, and then that that logic was based around provisioning the imperial cap capital, um, sort of drawing goods and wealth from the provinces to the center. Uh, so how is that? I mean, how has that sort of shaped um, our understanding of Ottoman space and uh, and trade, or and time? Uh, it's a complicated question, and it's been um, again discussed uh, often and repeatedly in by Ottoman historians. But the point that's of interest here, to my argument, is the the implication of this model for uh, for seagoing, if you want. And the assumption that it leads to is that this is one of the reasons, provisionism is one of the reasons for the Ottoman state's reticence to, um, to venture out into the sea, into the sea too yeah. much. Because the first principle of uh, their logic was supposedly to attract as much uh, right, so they're drawing inward to, rather than projecting to, uh, outwards. To the so. capital and to the army and to the, yeah. um, as opposed to going outwards, exactly. Yeah, yeah which is, uh, I mean, you know, it brings us back to some of your earlier comments about certain characteristics being associated with Europe uh, and other characteristics being associated with non-Europe and, you know, makes us think in interesting ways about, you know, the stories we tell about, you know, why uh, Europe was able to project outward and conquer versus other, you know, other, um, other parts of the world. So I think this, you know, has really fascinating implications. Yeah, and that features certainly the, the notion of, uh, this is why the sea features so prominently uh, in its association with Europe in, this, uh, in the early 19th century, uh, especially and beyond, is the fact that the sea is that natural element that right. leads to the outward turn and the it's, impulse to go. It somehow becomes a sort of, it makes uh, colonial expansion sort of seem like a natural outcome of, uh, of that of geographical long space. Yeah, Correct. it's really fascinating. It certainly features prominently in Hegel, for example. Yeah. yeah, so I'm wondering then, I mean, you know, one of the other things that, um, you know, I mean, obviously when you go to the Ottoman archive to find out about uh, the Ottomans and the Red Sea, uh, you actually find quite a bit about the space, even though they're not calling it uh, Bahri Ahmar until the 19th century. Um, so, you know, maybe you could, you could talk a little bit about the process of locating these documents in the archive. How do you, how do you navigate um, 
something like the Ottoman Archive, which is, you know, documents are very carefully cataloged in certain patterns and not in others. Um, how do you sort of, I mean, it's almost a reading against the grain of the archive in a way, given that this is not a category that you can, you know, there's no, there's no folder file on this space. Yes, absolutely. And I think this, the, the, the question of the archive uh, and its place and its importance in uh, Ottoman history is a topic that really uh, deserves further uh, elucidation and research. Um, but one of the uh, points I, I try to make also is that um, the structure of the archive, in a way, um, has played a role in structuring the historical narratives that, uh, that we tell about Ottoman history. And most evidently, the, um, the kind of national biases that are projected backwards mm. onto, uh, onto the Ottoman past. The most evident example could be Egypt, mm. for example. Right. Um, in that because Egypt has um, specific arch archival collections that belong to it um, going back long before there was such a thing as the nation state of Egypt. Correct. Um, this becomes a sort of obvious object for historical analysis. Correct. Correct. And meanwhile, something like, uh, you know, a space like the Red Sea obviously doesn't receive the same archival treatment. Exactly. Yeah. Um, exactly. And the critical point here is, is to insist on the fact that the uh, Ottoman province of Egypt is not, or the Ottoman province of Misr is not a, a kind of prefiguration or proto-national entity uh, that will kind of teleologically emerge into the modern nation-state of Egypt, but something significantly different. Um, um, and in fact, you found a lot of your, um, I mean, your material on what we now call the Red Sea in the in the folders uh, belonging to Egypt. Absolutely, so of course. There's much much Indeed. to be found that is not about um, simply the land space of the modern nation state. And this is one Correct. of I think the great fascinations of Ottoman history is that you know, um, in a way, I think it comes very easily to think about this as a location for a different kind of spatial imagination. You know, the sort of imperial formation versus, you know, the state. Absolutely. Um, but then also to recognize as you do that. Even the imperial archive, or you know, especially the imperial archive, also had its own categories. Of course, of course, to to rule is to classify. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So I guess maybe then we can turn um, to this question of the 19th century, which I'm really interested in my own work and sort of, you know, I think a lot of times we see the 19th century as this moment of um, of rupture, of transformation, of sort of an epistemic break. Uh, and it seems to me like, um, you know, you sort of approach this question doing, by doing a close reading of another document uh, that has to deal with this, you know, has to do with the space of the Red Sea. Um, what changes in the 19th century, both for, perhaps for Europeans, but, but also for Ottomans, um, both in the concept and the sort of, uh, you know, what, what is happening in the space of the Red Sea? Good question, of course, and one that dominates, uh, I think, many of our attempts at thinking through the Ottoman history uh, writ large. Mm. Um, well, there's a lot of things uh, going on that feed into <laughs> what, I'm, what, what I'm trying to, uh, to evoke in this book. But one of them, and a very important one, certainly is this um, epistemic break that you, that you evoke, in which happens in the European tradition, and which Michel Foucault, of course, has uh, uh, analyzed uh, superbly. Um, 
but which leads to, in, the, in, in what concerns us most closely, the institutionalization of history and geography as mm. academic disciplines. Right. Something that they never were before, in that form at least. Um, and so, with the emergence of the human sciences, what I argue is that uh, the, the sea emerges as an organizing uh, concept mm. uh, uh, too, alongside this wider discursive transformation. Mm. So as disciplines like history and geography takes, take shape, um, so too do their objects, right? Spaces Correct. like the sea, the, na exactly. you know, the land, the nation, the, the continents, city, right? et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, what's happening also is uh, the extension of a new form of imperial, European imperial power, uh, notably in the concerning the space that uh, that is at hand, the extension uh, and transformation of British um, presence in India and in the Indian Ocean more largely. Particularly, and I think, you know, I'm just thinking about this now, like fascinatingly, because of, or in our sort of traditional historical narrative, because of their dominance over the seas, right? Or at least the sea becomes the kind of, um, the kind of staging ground for imagining a new kind of, you know, global regime of power in which, you know, certain uh, certain groups will come and come to places that they haven't necessarily been before in the same way. Um, so Absolutely. maybe, yeah, yeah, we could turn to the to to the document again, which is, I think, um, another fascinating document. Which is, uh, let me see if I'm not mistaken, it's uh, sailing directions for the Red Sea, which yes, is a absolutely. British manual published in 1841. Or what? What is the nature so of the document? The, so it's it's heralded, if you want, in the in subsequent literature and even at the at the time as the uh, the first scientific charting of the Red Sea right. and its plenitude, uh, and something that was, of course, uh, that would come come in handy for another development that it emerges at the time, which is steam travel, right. uh, which um, which found it useful to have these types of manuals, right. Couched in the sort of new language of science and you know, mapping and... Uh, yes, yes, precisely. Uh, and participating in that wider uh, nexus of knowledge power absolutely. That, that is uh, well beyond the Red Sea as a discrete space. But what I, what I try to show is that this, uh, though it, of course, paraded itself as simply describing an object that was already there, uh, what and here I find inspiration from uh, the history of science in particular mm -hmm. and uh, science studies more largely. The act of charting the sea creates it as a scientific object and therefore transforms, intervenes in the world. Doesn't right. just represent the world as right. So science, like history, would. produces its object in a way. Correct. Yeah. Uh, which you know shouldn't. And this is what uh, historians of sciences have have demonstrated uh, beautifully, I think, which doesn't prevent, doesn't make it not real, mm -hmm. or it's not. It's the notion of reality is transformed. Right. So I guess I mean, and uh, you know, I hope our, our listeners will bear with me because this is sort of something I'm turning over in my own head. But um, you know, when I uh, when I looked at your treatment of this of this British document, this sort of new scientific manual charting the Red Sea for um, ships that were presumably coming from Europe. Uh, you know, m my sense was actually that it's, uh, you know, we talk about this as a moment of rupture, of epistemic break, of a sort of new kind of knowledge uh, slash power that is um, 
sort of taking over older notions of space and um, it's sort of it's you know how people are going to deal with it but when you actually look at the document it's it seemed like a, a kind of more complicated story and that they're invoking local knowledge you know there are these like very romantic pictures of um, you know native Arab sea captains who are charting their way around coral shoals that science hasn't been able to discover. You know, I mean, it seemed actually like there was, um, rather than a break or a, an imposition of a new kind of knowledge, there was actually more of a negotiation going on. I wonder, you know, if you agree with that characterization or, or how, you, how you think about this notion of what constitutes an epistemic break in this field. Yeah, again, this is a really important question and one that I try to grapple with in, in, one of, in that chapter that you're referring to. Uh, because indeed, what's what was startling to me in that document, and again, it takes a kind of, this is the value of slow, deep reading in a way. It allows you to kind of uh, penetrate the texture of the, of the document in question. Mm. Uh, but what struck me is, despite the, the, the claims of uh, omnipotence of modern science, mm. it, uh, it still found itself relying and had to verbalize that reliance on native, quote-unquote, native pilots. Right. But also the, the simple act of seeing as mm. opposed to uh, charting, charting knowing beforehand. and yeah. establishing in, uh, something set in stone. Mm. Um, but... So, so there are there are always aporias to the mm. to the claims of of uh, modern science, and um, that said, I do think something does change, mm -hmm. and maybe what changes is not necessarily the um, knowledge, the accumulation of knowledge about a place, but its configuration with uh, in its relationship to power, mm. uh, so that. Um, the charting of the Red Sea was also its uh, its domestication mm, as a space, capturing. its yeah. capturing as a space that upon which uh, a new form of power could be uh, mm. imposed. Yeah, that's a really nice uh, that's a really nice way of putting it, and something that I think um, you know gives us a very interesting way of thinking about this kind of larger question that's dominated a lot of Ottoman historiography about you know how do we characterize the relationship between the, the West so-called and the Ottoman Empire in this moment of transformation and I think that you know uh, you're also giving us a sense of um, a methodology that can help us think a little bit differently about these questions, you know, by, by reading these texts for their, um, for their tropes, for their sort of aesthetic effects, uh, for their sort of the work that they do on the reader and the audience, so the presumed audience, um, you, you direct our, our attention towards these issues about power and knowledge, uh, which I think could really, you know, stand to further enrich the field of Ottoman history. Uh, so I think that's a great that's a great way to close our episode um, for today. You know, I, which I think has been you know nominally a reflection on a very specific topic, right? This sort of um, the nature and the concept of the Red Sea uh, in the sort of four centuries that the Ottomans um, were present in that space, but is actually also um, like the book, which I encourage all of our readers to take a look at. Uh, really, a reflection on. Um, not only the discipline of Ottoman history, but actually the ways that, you know, we think about doing history, um, particularly in a sort of non-Western space. Um, 
so I, you know, I think that there are issues here that are of interest to historians of all stripes, not just Ottomanists, which of course we strive for. Um, and uh, I really, you know, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure to have you. Thanks, Susie. Thanks for having me. It's so, been a pleasure for me too. Good. Well, that's what we always like to hear. Um, so for those who want to find out more about today's episode, uh, I obviously encourage you to buy the book, Fresh Off the Presses. Um, and in the meantime, uh, or as well, you can also visit us on the web at www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Um, we'll post a short bibliography uh, that we'll come up with for this episode. And um, we also you know, direct you to uh, our, history, our series on the Ottoman History Podcast on the history of science. Um, where you know people like Palmer Brunman and others take up some of these questions of space and mapping, um, and also change or rupture in the 19th century uh, and before. Um, and we also have an ongoing series on urban space in the Ottoman Empire, which maybe um, you know takes up these questions of space and spatiality from a different perspective. Um, we also encourage our listeners, as always, to join us on Facebook uh, with your comments and questions. Uh, and uh, we thank you for listening. That's all for this episode. Until next time, take care.